Hi everybody, we're going to continue our journey around the world. Uh, in the next uh, few lectures, we're going to be taking a look at East Asia. East Asia includes China, Japan, South Korea, North Korea, and Taiwan. It's also the most populous region in the world. Um, after finishing reading the chapter and listening to the lectures on this region, you should understand the historical, cultural cohesiveness of this region while recognizing the evolution of economic and political diversity in the past half century in East Asia. I think you'll find this uh, region to be very fascinating, um, as I do. So let's take a look at our learning objectives. Uh, first of all, we're going to examine the regional variation, the urban patterns and morphology in East Asia. We're also going to understand the ways in which philosophical beliefs create both coherence as well as diversity within the region. We're going to consider the rapid change in the economies of East Asia during the 20th and the 21st century. And uh, it's a really fascinating story that I hope you will enjoy. Uh, you should, uh, as I mentioned, you should understand the historical cohesiveness in this region. Um, also, uh, understand the economic and political diversity, especially in the last half century. You should also understand the world prominence of countries of this region uh, in a historical sense and understand its rises and declines and, and its current role in world trading patterns. Um, after you finish uh, reading the textbook and listening to these lectures, you should be familiar with the physical, demographic, cultural, and political and economic characteristics of East Asia. Here are some of the key concepts that you should uh, be understanding and uh, picking up as you uh, read the chapter and listen to the lectures. Uh, first would be regulatory lakes, polluting export, anthropogenetic landscapes, central place theory, urban primacy, super conurbation, ideographic writing, Confucianism, Mandarins, geomancy, Marxism, Burakuman, Autonomous Region, Samurai, Spheres of Influence, Shogunate, Special Economic Zones, Laissez-faire, Rust Belt. Um, so as I mentioned, this region consists of um, China, Japan, South Korea, North Korea, and Taiwan, historically unified, as I mentioned before, and politically and ideologically divided uh, between uh, Marxist ideology, uh, obviously uh, democratic um, capitalist free enterprise ideology, but also in some cases a mixture of the two. So we'll see how this plays out over the next couple lectures. We're going to start by taking a look at the physical geography of the region and um, I always like to do this uh, by a map so you can understand where places, uh, the places that I'm talking about. So we're going to start off with uh, just a general description. Um, this area is uh, roughly at the same latitude as the United States, uh, especially uh, the east coast of the United States, that is. So we'll say, for example, that the uh, east coast of uh, Japan, uh, the climate there resembles very closely the, the east coast of the United States, with uh, Hokkaido up here in the northern part representing uh, New England. And then as we move further south, obviously we come into more temperate climates, uh, Tokyo has a climate that's very similar to Washington, D.C., and of course, as we move further south into some of the other islands, uh, we would experience a climate similar to what we would find in Florida. And the same is kind of true along the east coast of uh, Japan, or I'm sorry, of China as well. Okay, 
Um, when we talk about the island environment, sometimes referred to the insular environments. Insular is just another word for islands. The area from Japan through Taiwan is at the intersection of three tectonic plates is a very ge geologic geologically active. So we've had a lot of earthquakes in this region, volcanoes, and so forth. And you can see we have the Pacific Plate, the Philippine Plate, and the Eurasian Plate that all come together here. Now I'm sure most of you are uh, aware of the uh, very uh, serious and damaging earthquake that uh, Japan experienced just a few years ago that created the tsunami uh, that uh, has uh, and the damages from that are still impacting Japan, particularly to their nuclear power plants that were uh, damaged and are re continue to release um, nuclear radiation and fallout. Um, so uh, Japan has actually experienced quite a few earthquakes, uh, very serious earthquakes that have killed hundreds of thousands of people uh, throughout its history. Um, and as you can see, actually Japan is kind of interesting because most of Japan is really the tops of volcanic mountains. Uh, so these are actually mountain tops here um, that, from undersea volcanoes. And so this is a very, very tectonically active uh, area. It's part of what's referred to as the Pacific Ring of Fire. So um, other than the most recent earthquake, in 1995 Japan experienced an earthquake that was focused on Kobe uh, down in this area that killed uh, approximately 5,400 people. And then Tokyo had an extremely serious earthquake in 1923 that killed 143,000 people, if you can imagine. Talking about Japan's physical environment, uh, as I mentioned, it has a temperate climate for the most part. Um, uh, more snow in the areas facing the Sea of Japan. So you have more, sea, uh, more snow over in this area. Now, Sea of Japan, you can also see, uh, for my Korean friends, we know that this is also referred to as the East Sea. Okay, so uh, I want to make sure my Korean friends understand that I know that this is also the East Sea. But in most Western maps, you would find Sea of Japan. Um, areas facing the Pacific Ocean, on the other hand, uh, are vulnerable to typhoons, which are nothing more than hurricanes. So in the Atlantic, we've referred to these storms as hurricanes. In the Pacific, we've referred to them as typhoons. And as we'll see, in the Indian Ocean, we refer to them as cyclones. But they're all the same sort of thing, and we refer to them as hurricanes, so you know what they mean. So um, for the most part, a mild and rainy climate, as I mentioned, when we get up here to Hokkaido, we'll have a, almost a semi um, subarctic climate. Then they receive heavy snowfall up in this area. Uh, a number of years ago, the Winter Olympics was held up in here, up in Hokkaido. Okay, but Honshu, which is the main island, uh, we'll see that uh, has a fairly temperate climate. And as I mentioned, uh, Tokyo has a climate that's very similar to Washington D.C. Looking at the island, it's an island chain. Uh, the four main islands uh, here, we have the four main islands, Hokkaido in the north, Honshu, the major island, Shikoku, and also Kyushu uh, are the four major islands. And then we obviously we have other islands as well uh, that make up uh, Japan, such as Okinawa down in here. And you may have heard of Okinawa. Uh, the United States has a big, big military base there. It's very controversial and so forth. Um, as I mentioned, it's a very mountainous terrain because much of Japan is uh, really the tops of volcanic mountains. Over 85% of the land is mountainous. So 
Uh, we'll see that uh, the population density when we look at the population geography. And what, what we really need to remember is most of that population is really concentrated on these very, very narrow coastal plains and even on the west side as well. So as I said, we have alluvial plains and co along the coastline that's used for agriculture. Uh, and much of Japan is forested as well, as you can imagine, because of the mountainous areas. Uh, when we look at Taiwan, this is Taiwan down here. Um, Taiwan's about the size of Maryland. It too has very rugged mountains and so forth, uh, particularly for, on most of the island, quite frankly. Uh, and then it has a small coastal plain that faces mainland China. Uh, the central and east, as I mentioned, the central and eastern regions, rugged mountains. Western area has the uh, large alluvial plain. Uh, the climate, it's mild in winter, has occasional typhoons as well. Extensive forests in the remote eastern and central uplands. So much of the mountainous areas also is forested. Uh, looking at the mainland environments, uh, we're going to look at the Korean Peninsula first. Um, so the landscapes of, um, I'm sorry, we're going to look at mainland China first. Uh, the landscapes of southern China, rugged mountains, river valleys, and basins in the south in southern China. We have mountains down in this area of about 7,000 feet in elevation above sea level, and they would be south of the Yangtze River, which is right here. Okay. Uh, the Yangtze River is also known as the Shangjing River. Uh, it's the third largest river in the world by volume. It originates in the Tibetan Plateau, as we mentioned before, so out in this area. Uh, the climate um, in the north, uh, it's frigid and dry north of the Dabashan Mountains. The Daba Mountains are right in this area. Okay, so it's, it gets very cold up in here. Uh, green and wet south of the Dabas. Uh, and we have a very tropical climate in the very far south. Uh, in northern China, uh, the climate is colder and drier than in the south. Summer rainfall is abundant, so we're looking up in this area, up in here, as well as up in here in uh, Manchuria, or Gongbai, if you prefer, Gongbei. Um, the North China Plain is the cradle of Chinese civilization. And so that's the north, this is the North China Plain right in this area right here, as you can see. Okay. Um, it's now converted to agriculture, and this is the area that we often refer to as the anthropogenic landscape because it's been totally been, it's been totally transferred, uh, transformed by human activity. Uh, low um, relatively low precipitation, especially as you move further inland. Uh, potential for desertification and semi-arid conditions um, in this area as well. Uh, lowest plateau is west of the, no uh, the North China Plain. So here's the North China Plain, and right in here is the lowest plateau. Lowest plateau is actually very interesting. Lowest is soil that's derived from wind-deposited uh, wind silt. So over um, centuries and probably thousands of years, We've had wind blow in through this area, uh, in from the west, and deposit very rich soil in the lowest plateau. Now, the thing about that um, lowest plateau, uh, first of all, the soil can be about 600 feet in some areas, and it's also easily eroded. Uh, the Longhe River, or the Yellow River, as you know, as you probably know it by, uh, actually flows through the lowest plateau. 
And actually, this the color of the soil is uh, has a yellowish color to it, and that's actually what gives the Warnhe or the Yellow River its uh, uh, yellow tint, and that's why it's often referred to as the Yellow River because the water appears to be yellow because of all the silt in it, and because the Warnhe then eventually flows into, guess what, the Yellow Sea because right along the coastline, as this yellow uh, water from the river flows into the, uh, into the sea, it gives the sea the appearance of a yellow color as well. Uh, and it's depositing a lot of silt out in this area that's uh, creating, uh, that is expanding the North China Plain, um, quite frankly. So we actually have the land area expanding through the deposition of silt out in this area. Um, precipitation out in this area is uncertain in the lowest plateau. Remember, we're moving further away from sources of water and sources of moisture uh, to create rain or snow. Uh, let's see. Uh, soils are fertile uh, because of the, uh, lowest uh, the lowest plateau. The soils are very fertile. Uh, but uh, because of the lack of precipitation, uh, agriculture is sometimes difficult. I should have also mentioned uh, both the Yangtze or the Wanghe and the uh, I'm sorry, the uh, Shangjing and, and the Yangtze and also the Wanghe and the Yellow Rivers both flood occasionally and uh, very devastating floods, quite frankly. And the uh, Yellow River is often referred to as the River of Sorrow because of the number of people and the amount of property that it destroys. Now let's move to the far north in this area called Dumbai, up in this area. It's also known as Manchuria. Okay. Um, it's a fertile lowland between mountains. It has very brutal, very cold winters, warm, moist summers. It has China's best forest areas, and some wetlands remain up in this area as well. Now we're going to move on to look at the uh, Korean Peninsula. Um, so, as if you remember correctly, to be considered a peninsula, the land has to be surrounded by water on three sides, which indeed this is the case. We have the East China Sea here. We have the Yellow Sea, and we have the East Sea, or the Sea of Japan here. Uh, it's separated from China by mountains. Up in here, you can see the mountains that separate the Korean Peninsula from China. Uh, it has significant north-south climate variation. Uh, it's very much like Maine, up here in the very northern part, uh, and like Southern California down here in the very southern part. South Korea has better agriculture than North Korea. North, uh, the North has better mineral deposits, forests, and hydroelectric uh, sources because of the rivers than the South. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the uh, environmental degradation in the region as well. Um, when we talk about the environmental problems uh, in this area are particularly severe because one, the large population size, two, the massive industrial development in both uh, Japan and most recently in China, and of course the physical geography. So as I mentioned, uh, dams, and dams flooding and soil erosion in China. Yangtze River, also called the Changjing as I mentioned, is the third largest river in the world uh, by volume. Historically, the main avenue of entry into the interior of China. So this is um, this is the Yangtze flowing in here, as you can see, and it really is um, the uh, one of the main avenues of uh, entrance into 
the central part of the, uh, the country. And you can see it flows in here to the city of um, Zhongjing in the central part of the country. Uh, so it's very, been very important for transporting goods into the interior and obviously transporting goods from the interior out to uh, here. So Shanghai is actually at the mouth of the, uh, of the, uh, of the Yangtze. And uh, Shanghai, there's another river here called the Wangpu that uh, uh, is a tributary to the Yangtze, and they come together here. Okay. Um, Yangtze, uh, okay. Uh, since 1990s, the river has become uh, a focal point for environmental controversy, mainly because of the uh, Three Gorges Dam that has been built. Uh, the Three Gorges Dam uh, is the largest dam in the world. It was completed in 2006. Uh, in building the dam, the Chinese government displaced more than 1.2 million people and caused significant ecological damage uh, through flooding uh, fertile farmlands and things like that. Several large, um, but it also provides uh, massive amounts of electricity for the country and theoretically controls flooding in the lower rivers, lower reaches of the Yangtze. So the Three Gorges Dam, which was built, was uh, built uh, for uh, obviously to provide electric power for um, this part of the country. Um, it was also built to control flooding. But one of the big controversies is the amount of silt that builds up behind the dam. And there's real fears that uh, because the silt builds up so fast uh, behind the dam, it's real fears that the dam uh, with heavy rains could actually overflow or actually collapse because of the weight of the silt and so forth. Um, the World Bank and the, I, uh, the World Bank in particular withdrew its funding for building of the dam because of the environmental concerns. Uh, in flooding, flooding in northern China, the deforested uh, North China Plain, as we pointed out before, up in this area, um, is plagued by drought and flood. Several large-scale hydro hydraulic engineering products, projects initiated over the years to control floods and allow irrigation, but flooding is never completely uh, prevented. And as I mentioned, along the Wanghe or the Yellow River, it's sometimes referred to as the River of Sorrow. Uh, the worst floods occur along the Wanghe or the Yellow River uh, that flows through the lowest plateau and carries a huge sediment load. Throughout the flat North China Plain, river loses velocity. Sediments settle in the riverbed. River, the river level rises and floods the surrounding uh, region. Um, on the lowest plateau, we have a lot of erosion, of course. Lowest consists, as I mentioned, of fine windblown sediment that was deposited in this upland area during the last ice age. For, uh, it forms fertile soil, but washes away quite easily. The lowest plateau is one of the poorest regions in, of China. The good farmland is limited, uh, is limited and drought is common. Uh, so this is the, you can see the lowest plateau here and the erosion, the Three Gorges Dam that we mentioned, the Yangtze flooding that I talked about, and of course uh, we have deforestation in southern China. Most of the uplands of southern China are largely deforested, the result of a process that dates back hundreds, if not thousands of years, but which uh, accelerated in the 20th century. Reforestation efforts have been, uh, at the at best, uh, partially successful. And actually, I should mention, um, Beijing actually receives uh, um, dust storms uh, 
quite frequently, a couple times a year, as uh, wind uh, blows into the city from the west and picks up lowest, and uh, if we have drought in this area, picks up dust and so forth that plagues uh, Beijing. And in an effort to prevent that, the Chinese have actually um, tried to build something called the Great Green Wall. They've tried to reforest some of this area out in here to uh, prevent the dust from being picked up and blown, uh, in, uh, being blown towards uh, Beijing and some of the other cities along the, uh, in the east. Um, let's see, some of the other East Asian uh, problems. Um, as I mentioned, deforestation and desertification. China lacks historical tradition of forest conservation, unlike uh, Japan, which does have a uh, history of forest conservation. After centuries of exploitation, many hill slopes are degraded. Within the past 50 years, China has attempted reforestation projects. Many have failed. Desertification is also a major problem. China has responded with massive dune stabilization schemes, uh, particularly out, as I mentioned, out in this area with the Great Green Wall. As far as pollution goes, uh, as China's industrial base expands, other environmental problems, including air and water pollution and toxic, toxic waste dumping, have increased. Problems are particularly acute along the coastal areas. Um, yeah, and uh, you probably have seen in the news uh, in some of the larger cities, particularly Beijing, seems to be plagued a lot with uh, air pollution that, uh, where they actually have to encourage people to stay indoors because the pollution is so bad. Uh, and some of the other industrial cities throughout China as well. The, the smog and, and the smoke is so bad that uh, it's very difficult for people to even see, uh, much less be able to breathe the air. And when I was in China, uh, you'll see lots of people walking around with... Uh, the mask over their mouth and nose, the, I guess, surgical mask over their mouth and nose to prevent them from breathing in uh, the pollution and so forth. And that's quite uh, quite uh, apparent in China. Um, you see uh, quite a few people doing that. Uh, when I was in China, I really didn't experience uh, that problem. I was in Shanghai and in another city up in uh, this area, um, Zhenjiang. Uh, but uh, I really didn't notice any problems with um, the pollution. As a matter of fact, the air was pretty clean as far as I could tell. Uh, and uh, I was in the, uh, up on the Oriental Pearl Tower in Shanghai, which it looked, uh, outlook, or looks over the entire city, which is absolutely an incredible view. Um, Shanghai has a population of about 24 million people. And when you're up on the Oriental Pearl Tower, which I said is you know, very uh, high, um, in elevation, um, you can pretty much look out the, over the entire city, but the entire city just stretches in every direction as far as you can see. Uh, so you never really see the end of the city, but I could see a long way in distance, so I don't think the pollution was too bad at that time. Um, so anyway, uh, as I mentioned, as China's industrial base, other environmental problems, uh, become apparent, and particularly air pollution and water pollution and so forth. And you can see from this map, um, we have uh, extensive coastal pollution in some of these areas um, from sewage and obviously industrial uh, waste and so forth that uh, ends up um, either in the rivers and then flows into the seas or, or, or put directly into the seas. And all, pretty much all of the countries in the area experience this problem, as you can see. Uh, well, actually, they all do, as you can see from this particular map. Um, 
Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't want to do that. So uh, these are some of the regulatory lakes. I didn't mention these that were uh, built uh, to help prevent the flooding of the uh, of the Yangtze before the uh, Three Gorges Dam was built. So the thinking was, as the river flowed in this way, uh, these lakes, uh, uh, when the when the river began to flood, much of the water would collect in these lakes, and then would uh, and that would uh, prevent the flooding from down, uh, downstream. Um, it worked, but if you lived in this area, uh, it probably didn't work too well for you. Okay, uh, so it worked fairly well downstream, but not too well in this area because these areas did become flooded. Uh, let's move on and take a look at uh, Japan. Japan's environment is relatively clean because of strict environmental laws implemented in the 1970s. But Japan also engages in something called pollution exporting. Because of its strict environmental laws, many Japanese firms have moved their dirtier factories overseas, uh, first to uh, Korea and then to other parts of East Asia and Southeast Asia in particular. Um, um, many Japanese firms, as I mentioned, uh, Japan's pollution has been displaced um, to poor countries such as Vietnam, um, let's see, probably Cambodia, Malaysia, Indonesia for sure, and so forth. Taiwan and, Korea, and South Korea both have large chemical steel and other heavy industries. They have imposed stringent environmental controls. However, they have also export, begun to export their pollution as well to some of the poorer countries in Southeast Asia. Uh, when we look at some of the endangered species, uh, there's a growing number of endangered species linked to the demand for ingredients in traditional Chinese medicine. Things like deer antlers, bear gallbladders, snake blood, rhinoceros horns, and tiger penises. Uh, demand has increased with increased economic wealth in China. Uh, China has moved to protect some habitats and animals, most notably their panda bear. Uh, wildlife is scarce throughout the Korean Peninsula, but ironically protected along the demilitarized zone that separates North and South Korea. So it's actually pretty interesting, this uh, demilitarized zone between South Korea and North Korea. And we'll talk more about how this uh, came about. Uh, it's the area, it's sometimes referred to as no man's land uh, because it's this uh, area where actually nobody goes into uh, and it separates North and South Korea. And it's, it's uh, sometimes uh, thought to be probably the most environmentally um, pristine place, one of the most environmentally pristine places on earth because there's no human activity in there. And we'll, we'll uh, and this, uh, you know, this demilitarized zone was uh, established after the Korean War. So it's been several decades since any humans have actually been in this uh, relatively small area uh, that separates the two countries. Uh, talking about global warming in um, East Asia, because of China's rapid increases in carbon emissions, uh, actually uh, China now leads the world in uh, uh, green, uh, carbon emissions. Um, the United States is second. Uh, China overtook the United States uh, about two or three years ago in that, uh, in that area. Uh, the region has assumed global prominence in debates on climate change. Potential effects of climate change throughout the region are severe, including water shortages and diminished agricultural productivity. 
China insists that economic growth take precedence over reduction of greenhouse gas emissions. China also plans to significantly ex expand nuclear power, use of renewable energy uh, sources, and promotion of reforestation projects. should also mention that China uh, China um, uses a lot of coal uh, to produce electricity, so they have a lot of coal-fired power plants, which really uh, increases uh, their um, carbon emissions uh, quite substantially. And until they bring other sources of energy online, they're going to continue to burn more and more coal uh, in China. And uh, China's growing so rapidly, its economy is growing so rapidly, and its industrialization is growing so rapidly. I just actually read a very interesting article over the weekend that, um, and, and, and what that means is that they're urban populations. The people uh, moving from rural, rural areas to the cities is growing so rapidly that China's going to have to build a New York City every year and a half just to accommodate. Imagine that, a New York City every year and a half just to accommodate the growing urban population in um, in, in China, uh, the gr growing urban population in China. Uh, China is actually a very interesting place. I hope you get to go there sometime. Uh, every place you look in China, that you see construction cranes. And I mean, just uh, over the landscape, just everywhere you look, there's you know they're building apartments, they're building office buildings, they're building something. Every pretty much every place you go. Um, so it, it's very fascinating. Um, they also have uh, what's uh, sometimes referred to as ghost cities. Uh, the Chinese government um, has built like 300 cities where nobody lives, which is kind of interesting as well, anticipating uh, the urbanization. Um, so they have these cities already built. Um, I suspect that it's, they're anticipating urbanization and people moving to these cities eventually. Uh, but at this time, there's something like 300 cities that they call ghost cities where nobody lives, which is kind of strange in some ways, um, in a lot of ways, I guess. Okay, uh, Japan, South Korea, all major emitters of greenhouse gases, but also have energy-efficient energy economies. Uh, Japan has, a, has been a strong proponent of international duties and is viewed as a world leader in a broad range of climate-friendly technologies. Uh, one of the other things I wanted to mention also about China, I'm sorry I keep skipping back and forth, China is a leader in solar energy, uh, not just in uh, using solar energy, but developing solar energy technologies. And uh, uh, it's, a, uh, it's an area that the United States really uh, had the lead in and started, um, you know, the production of solar panels and things like that. But the Chinese have really overtaken that and become worldwide leaders in the production of solar panels and solar energy technology. And I happen to be watching um, a soccer match this weekend from, um, from Brazil, actually. And uh, it was interesting because uh, if you watch soccer at all, you know, along the sidelines, they have the various advertisements. And one of the advertisements, advertisements was Ying Li, solar, uh, solar power, solar energy, uh, a Chinese firm advertising in Brazil. It's uh, solar energy and solar, um, solar panel products and things like that. So I thought that was kind of interesting as well when we talk about globalization. 
Okay, so let's take a look at this map, see if we've missed anything. Uh, you can see extensive deforestation down in the south, some of the areas where forests exist. Uh, Taiwan, we have uh, forests in the central and eastern part of the country. Japan, you can see, is still heavily forested, uh, especially on the island of Honshu, uh, where the major part of the population lives. And you can see North Korea still has a you know, fair amount of uh, forests that exist. <clears throat> and in northern China, we've had the threat of deforestation. Uh, but still have some relatively uh, large uh, forested areas that remain. South Korea, you can see not much forest remaining and a heavy threat of deforestation as well. So let's take a look at some of these um, some of these industries. Uh, so I mentioned the Chinese coal-fired power plants, and here you can see one of those power plants. You can see all this, uh, the uh, carbon emissions, the smoke, and so forth going up into the air. So we talked about flooding, we talked about the lowest plateau erosion, deforestation, industrification, pollution, and pollution exporting, and endangered species. We've talked about all those things. So let's move on. Here's the Three Gorges Dam. This is actually a very beautiful area, uh, as you can see, a very beautiful area, um, the Three Gorges area. And then we have the uh, Wanghe River. As you can see, uh, the Wanghe in the north that goes through the yellow, uh, the lowest plateau, and you can see it actually does have kind of a yellowish tint to it. It's difficult to see because it's going over these rapids here, uh, but certainly uh, the Wanghe or the Yellow River. Uh, these are some of the uh, deforested hill slopes, and uh, as you can see. And then this is the dune stabilization program that I was talking about. This is probably part of the Great Green Wall. Uh, and so you plant these uh, trees and other vegetation to try to prevent the sand dunes and the sand and so forth blowing away. Uh, we've talked about the global impacts of Chinese pollution. It's the largest emitter of carbon uh, dioxide, um, vulnerable to political instability. Uh, embraces green energy. So, uh, what really, you know, if um, you know, really, uh, if the Chinese want to impose uh, environmental regulations um, and it begins to slow their economy, uh, that could have political repercussions. Um, but you can see this is a wind farm in China. I'm not exactly sure where this might be. I suspect it's more in the western part of China, uh, the inland areas obviously, of China because of the relatively flat terrain in this area and the terrain that really has very little vegetation, apparently. So I suspect that this is the, uh, and, uh, pretty far inland, and you can see the transmission for the electric lines and so forth here as well. Um, talking about the climate a bit, uh, I, I, I did mention the climate. But I'll just go through it on this map as well. As you can see, as I mentioned, let's start with uh, Japan. Up here in, the, in Hokkaido, we have a DFB climate. So we have a humid continental climate. That means it receives rainfall uh, pretty much year-round. Uh, well, um, at least during the summer months. Uh, winters are somewhat drier. Uh, it has cool summers. But then as you move further south, we have... Um, I'm sorry, it does have a DFB climate. 
A DFB climate is the humid continental without a dry season and a cool summer. So yes, and, and as I mentioned, this area receives a lot of snowfall in the wintertime, uh, very deep snowfalls, quite frankly. Then we move down to Hanshu, and the northern part of Hanshu has a humid continental without, any, without a dry winter, and it has a warm summer. Okay, so think about coming, you know, uh, from like Maine maybe, or uh, yeah, from Maine down through New England, and then down to the Mid-Atlantic states and so forth, and uh, when you get down into here, uh, and then uh, around Tokyo has a CFA climate, humid subtropical, without a dry season, and has hot summers. Uh, so much, very much like Washington D.C. as I mentioned before, and same thing as you move further down along um, Kyushu and Shikoku as well. And then when you get down here to uh, some of the southern islands, uh, particularly down around Okinawa and so forth, you have a very tropical climate down in here. Uh, as you can see in uh, Taiwan, we have a CFA climate. CFA climate is humid subtropical, without a dry season, hot summers. <clears throat> okay, and so this is, both these areas are um, vulnerable to typhoons, as I mentioned before. <clears throat> On the Korean Peninsula, we'll move from the south to the north. We have a CFA climate in the southern part in, uh, that covers most of South, uh, south Korea. And again, the CFA climate is a humid subtropical without a dry season and hot summers. And so this area also uh, sometimes, is, sometimes is vulnerable to typhoons as typhoons come in up through the East China Sea. And then as we move a bit further north, we come into obviously colder climates as well. So we come into the, DF, um, the DFA climate, which is the humid continental without a dry winter and warm summer. And then the DFB climate, once we get in, up in here into Manchuria or Dongbei, if you prefer, in China. And then obviously coming down along the coast of China, as you can see, we have... Um, well, let's look at China. We had the, uh, a, a desert-like situation here, mid-latitude desert. This would be our Gobi Desert in here, and our Taklamakan Desert out in, the, out in this area as well. We have a highland climates um, in the mountainous areas in the Tibetan Plateau, if you recall. Uh, BSK, as we move a little bit further north into Inner Mongolia, and a little bit further south, we have our steppe areas. And you can see Beijing is right on the kind of the border area between the steppe climate and our, uh, it looks like DFB climate, or DFA, or I'm sorry, DWA climate, uh, humid continental with a dry winter and cool summer. And then as we move further south, our climates become warmer. And again, the east coast of China experiences um, typhoons and uh, some uh, in uh, in the summertime, you can experience typhoons uh, that blow in to, from the East China Sea. And then you can see at the very further south, uh, we have a monsoon climate as well. Okay, <clears throat> so it's actually interesting. Uh, down in this area, they do, uh, and we'll talk more about this when we talk about the population. Uh, they grow a lot of rice, obviously, down in this area. They do double and even sometimes triple cropping because of the very long growing season. And we'll see how those crop patterns change as we move further north. Uh, I've talked about the earthquakes uh, in this region, and I, this is just a close-up. As you can see, um, these are areas of uh, tsunami activity. 
okay, along the coast uh, as a result of earthquakes. Um, and you can see, as I mentioned before, we have the Pacific, Philippine, and Eurasian plates that come here, come by here. So, uh, Sendai City in 2005, 7.2. Uh, in 2007, we had the, uh, uh, well, I'm not even going to try to pronounce that, Kashiwasaki uh, earthquake 6.8. Uh, then you can see 1927, we had the uh, Tango earthquake, which was 8.0. So a long history of earthquakes in this region. And then again, this gives you a better uh, view of the, uh, of the um, landscape of Japan as well. And you can see the hill, hill areas and mountains. So this area is very hilly, very mountainous. As I mentioned, here are the Japanese Alps in the interior. Okay. And then this is Hokkaido up in here as well. Um, and then the uh, yellow color is the uh, alluvial plains and the lowlands areas. So this is referred to as the Kanto Plain. This is actually probably the most developed area in all of uh, Japan. Uh, it's the area of where Tokyo is located. It's uh, obviously relatively flat. It's good for doing agriculture, but it's also highly urbanized as well. And we'll talk a bit more about urban agriculture when we talk about the population geography. And then this is Nagoya, another one of the major cities, uh, Osaka, Kyoto, and so forth. But we'll talk more about these when we talk about the population geography. Uh, so this is, would be heavy snow in Hokkaido, the forested landscape in Japan, as you can see. It's very heavily forested. I suspect this is Mount Fuji in the background, very, fam uh, very famous. Uh, and then this is uh, the landscape regions in China. This is South China, as I mentioned. Uh, it's fairly warm year-round. And then as we move across this, so this would be where the Daba Mountains are, the Dabashan Mountains are located in this area. Uh, so south of this have the fairly mild climate year-round to the north. As you move further north, um, things become uh, obviously colder as you move further north. So here's our North China Plain, uh, Northwest China in the lowest plateau. Here's Manchur Manchuria or Dunbei, if you prefer. This is the lower Yangtze, middle Yangtze, and the upper Yangtze. Uh, this would be Guangdong and Kuangshu down in here, and Yunnan and Kuangshu out here. And of course, this is our Tibetan Plateau that we've already talked about, and Xinjiang, which we've already talked about as well. Uh, this is the Korean Peninsula, as you can see, with its extensive uplands interspersed with lowland plains and uh, pronounced latitudinal change. So as we already saw on the climate map, it's it quite cold and so forth up in here. Uh, much like uh, we've, uh, as I mentioned, uh, maybe experience in Maine. And then as we move further south, uh, you know, uh, a climate that we might uh, find in uh, South Carolina, Georgia, and so forth down in this area. And you can see it also is very mountainous, very hilly in this area with uh, some interspersing of lower low areas and things like that, river valleys and coastal and coastal plains as well. Uh, Pyongyang is the capital of North Korea. 
uh, here's Seoul, North um, capital of South Korea. Some of the other major cities, so I have this map here and it's showing them, are Incheon in here, Guangzhou down in here, Busan over in here, um, and so forth. So that's uh, the physical geography of this region. As you can see, uh, in many areas, it's very mountainous, especially on the on the islands and also on the peninsula. Uh, China has a very uh, relatively flat area along the coastal areas, and that's as you, uh, that's where most of the population population is located. And its rainfall diminishes as you move from the East China Sea inland uh, and becomes a desert area, such as the Goli. <laughs> the Goli, the Gobi, and the Taklamakan Desert. I, have, I guess I have soccer on my mind. And the Goli Desert, or the Gobi Desert, is what, really what I meant. So when we come back, we're going to take a look at the population and settlement geography of the region, and probably also the cultural geography of the region as well.